Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan, and I will be your host. Today, we are in a huge UBS building. In Altstetten, there are probably several thousand people working. But the corporate spirit only hit us at the entrance and the security gates. For the interview with Verena Kaiser, we go to the in-house innovation lab, where there is a creative and startup-like atmosphere. Verena is head of direct investment at UBS and has already accompanied numerous well-known startups in their search for capital, including, for example, the eyewear startup VIEW. We talked to Verena about later stage fundraising and shed light on the process, the requirements and the choice of the right investors in this exciting area. One more thing, about to start your own business? Cool, congratulations on taking the plunge. We're excited to hear your new business idea. With UPS Start Business, you can start your own business in six easy steps. Our starter kit includes tips and attractive offers. Save money with our free capital deposits account, business account, and prepaid card. And our new startup service lets you delegate all the administrative effort. What insurance do I need? Where can I find great co-working spaces? Find out more today at ubs.com slash start business. Verena, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's great to have you here today. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. Today, we're going to talk about fundraising for growth. We do a Q&A on that topic. Mm-hmm. And the first question that we have is, what is the difference between fundraising for growth versus seed financing? So fundraising, fundraising for growth is obviously the, uh, the stage of the, of the life cycle the companies are in is uh, more advanced. So they're already commercialized. Uh, they generate sales with a diversified customer base, not only with the early adopters, but also the ones that use, uh, use the product, the service, um, you know, for a longer term. So you have recurring customer base. Uh, yeah. But does that mean in, in terms of like sales? Is there a certain amount of sales that you need to have in so, order to be eligible for yeah. growth? So move towards a million of sales uh, with a diversified customer base. I think that's very important because in IT, for example, you could have one project with one million of sales. Exactly. So it should be really a diversified customers, a customer base with whom the companies generate, uh, generate the sales. Mm-hmm. And when you're in this process of, you know, getting started and fundraising for growth, when should you actually start with the fundraising process? So, um, I always, uh, I always tell the companies they should start early on, meaning have a good 12 months of, of cash run rate still available because it's a very uncomfortable situation if you're in fundraising, which usually takes longer than you expect and then you run out of cash. So it's a very uncomfortable situation. So really have, you know, enough cash still available, um, for, you know, for you to be comfortable in your fundraising round. And in order to get ready for such a fundraising, uh, some people call it like transaction readiness. <laughs> How do you get ready to actually go and fundraise for growth as a startup? So to be in a position to do fundraising in a growth stage, um, at least with us, is you have uh, to have around a million of sales with a diversified customer base. Mm-hmm. Um, they should be ideally recurring customers and not really the, the only the early adopters, but really a good basis. And, and ideally, we find some good names within your customer base. Um, I want to see a solid management team uh, with diverse backgrounds that really um, um, divides the task according to their capabilities and not mm-hmm. really has, has all responsibility within one person. 
Um, obviously, um, you know, we want to see a clear growth strategy and a clear path uh, of achievements um, that have been reached today and, and also the way on how to reach profitability. So in growth stage, I really want to see, you know, in, in, in near to midterm um, that, that um, companies reach profitability and how they plan on further scaling. And you really talk about the transaction readiness. What that means for me is how do I get ready for, uh, for the fundraising, meaning um, do I have all my documents ready? So a business plan, financials, are they in line with the strategy? Mm-hmm. My valuation, is, is it thought through? Can I really defend it if an investor, uh, you know, asks these questions and is trying to negotiate? Right. Um, all the requirement documents, you know, for legal, commercial, financial and tax due diligence. And, and obviously um, to, to really be prepared so that you can start uh, start the fundraising. There really is a lot of work to do. Yes, uh, there's a lot of preparatory work to do, uh, but it's it's definitely it's definitely worth it because uh, investors will appreciate it if you have uh, sound and and good documentations ready with uh, hopefully no mistakes, um, and and that will give trust in you that you do a proper job. So once you actually achieve that status, how does the fundraising process for growth actually look like? Like where do you start? So. Um, uh, how we start is usually startups approach us through different channels. Uh, we have a huge network, so either you know they're recommended by other startups to us, or they uh, you know they they come through a network partner, they contact us directly, or go through their client advisors within UBS, and then we we usually review the business plans first. So mm-hmm. I would say up to date, we've seen more than two thousand business plans. And um, we want to get a first feeling of what we think the company is, is doing. And then, you know, probably more than 50% of those we've met actually in person because we wanted to understand, you know, what's the team like, uh, the team structure and, and you know, here in person, um, what their growth story is or what they tell about their startups. Um, so I think that's the first two steps. And, and after we've met uh, the companies, then I would say it's a, it's a decision. Do we think it's a company that has promising a growth path in front of it and can we do successful fundraising for it and if yes we go into i would say a review phase or soft due diligence in which we um, dig more into the details we wanted to understand more you know the financials the growth plans the competition the market mm-hmm. so the entire picture um to uh, to to make an informed decision if we think yes we go to our committee internally we present it and get our approvals to then show it to our investor base. And our investor base, I would say, is threefold. So on one hand, obviously, our USP is, as the largest wealth manager, is the private um, investor base. So the the family offices of the world, C-level management, and so on and so forth, VCs and obviously strategic investors. So that's, I would say, in a nutshell, how the process looks like um, within, within our direct investment team. I think you have a very broad experience. You also worked with like very well-known startups yeah. like Vue, for example, or also yeah. Ava. So I would also like to look at the process from a startup perspective. So what does a startup need to achieve or to work on in terms of the process? I can imagine it probably starts with the research of potential investors and also preparation of documents. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how that works and what you need to get ready there? Yeah. So looking back um, at the companies we supported in the past, and you just mentioned uh, two of them, like Ava and Vue, but to give you a bit of the feel, uh, you know, we also supported on um, Best Mile, Farmy, or in the life science space, in Sphero and Kutis, and, and many others. The preparation of the process uh, pretty much looks the same for, for each and every one of them. The key item for me, before you actually start uh, searching for your investor base or define the investors you wanted to approach, 
is, is actually the equity story. Um, it needs to be an attractive and compelling um, stories the startups should have available. Mm -hmm. um, it reflects the rationale why the investors should actually invest um, in the company. And in addition, what are your achievements to date? Um, what makes you stand out um, versus others in the markets? How you differentiate yourself? How do you plan to scale and excel, etc.? So the equity story is really the story you want to tell to convince investors to invest in you. So before you, um, you know, and, and maybe this goes in parallel, when you set up your equity story and you prepare all your documentation that you then need, um, like the, the, the business plan, your financials, all legal documentation you need to have ready. Um, uh, you know, IP materials, supplier contracts, uh, contracts with large clients, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to, 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 you know, to start this process, you need to get all this, all this documentations and the story ready. But the other important piece is to define your investor group. Um, and and um, to see what kind of investor will actually be the right one to help you during your next growth phase. What actually do you want to achieve? Mm -hmm. Is this you want to scale, you want to excel, you want to um, expand into different countries? You might need someone that has experience exactly in this field as an entrepreneur that has already done the next steps you wanted to do. Are you envisaging an exit in two or three years' time? Then you maybe look for a totally different type of investor that really helps you get ready for exit. Mm -hmm. So first of all, get your story ready. Get ready where you want it to be in the next years. Then define uh, the investor base you're actually looking for so you can start actively searching for these type of investors. And then it's also a question of reaching out to the right investors. So mm -hmm. how do you as a startup determine or find the right investors that actually fit well to your story and your growth case that you want to build? I think it's it's important um, when you think about your next growth phase. So you, you look for a certain amount of fundraising mm -hmm. and you know uh, you look for five or 10 million, 20 million and, um, and you determine what how you would like to invest your proceeds. So you have certain milestones or achievements you wanted to get or achieve during your next growth phase. And that determines what type of investor you're actually looking for. You know, are you looking for a VC type uh, investor, uh, maybe also an international one, or you, are you rather looking for a family office or a private investor that brings in other type of uh, network know-how that, that he or she has due to her, uh, you know, career existing positions, past positions, you really need to determine first what's your next growth phase and what's actually the right investor for this growth phase. Is there an example where you would say for that case, this investor makes more sense than the other and vice versa? So maybe um, maybe let's take a step back first and quickly look um, at least high level at the differences between the between the investors. So a VC, for example, has a, a set fund life, which is usually between, you know, 10 to 12 years. Mm -hmm. They build a diversified portfolio of uh, multiple early stage uh, companies, which, um, you know, should help the VC to reach the targeted return that they promised their investors. Sure. Um, so the VC definitely is, um, is, is focusing on achieving the returns for their investors. Therefore, um, the VCs will only hold the startups for a certain period of time and obviously um, wants to exit to achieve its returns. Um, in addition, a VC, you know, will bring bring in more conditions um, uh, along, like with with uh, board seat, maybe liquidation preference, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's really the VC type. When you look at family offices, I would say private investors. Um, 
On the other end, they have more or less an indefinite investment horizon. I'm not saying that they would like to stay with the startups forever. They, all, they also want to see um, when the exit will come to, to realize their returns. But the investment horizon definitely is longer. Um, usually, out of my experience, the private ones or the family offices, they have a strong entrepreneurial DNA. Um, so a specific or an, a specific expert, an expertise in a specific area or a specific domain mm -hmm. um, and will more likely act as a sparings partner um, alongside, uh, you know, alongside the startup and besides bringing on capital um, additional value add. Um, they don't necessarily want to sit on the board. Some want, some not. So okay. it really depends versus a VC will always have a board seat. Um, but the, the family offices or the private one will always be um, really a valuable partner. So really just to set the scene on a very high level, what's the difference between the fam family right. offices and the VCs? But coming back to your um, original question, I think it very much depends on the startup. Um, and obviously the phase that a startup is in, what, what we have already talked about uh, today. Um, you know, if if um, if as a next step, as you said, you envision an exit, maybe the VC is the right partner because the VC knows how to um, accompany the startups and how to make them ready for an exit. So maybe a VC is then the right partner, not saying a family office would not be capable of doing so, but um, uh, obviously that's that's the experience a VC has. And um, and on the other hand, if you really look to accelerate your business, expand in certain areas, you need very specific know-hows mm -hmm. and network, then maybe, you know, the family office or the private investor is actually the right one um, to, to successfully help you um, to achieve your goals. Absolutely. What's very important, and maybe I want to mention this at this point in time as well, is you as a startup always have to bear in mind that your investor base signals a certain message in terms of reputation um, to Good the outside point. world. So it will give you credibility and a certain belief that you will be able to um, achieve your goals that you that you set yourself. Mm -hmm. And um, it's so you really have to carefully select your investor base. Obviously, sometimes it's not so easy, but um, you should carefully really select your um, investor base because it will it will send a certain message to the outside world. Um, and also in next rounds, when you mm -hmm. when you really do fundraising um, again, then new investors will definitely take a look at your existing ones and are these reputable right. ones? Uh, do you think you know? Do you feel good in in in, in being investors alongside them? So I think it's 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 uh, very important to choose the investors carefully. And then actually, how do we get in touch with these investors? I think that's also something where you support the startups yeah. with, right? So how does that work? Do they get in touch over a phone call? Do they have a meeting? So what you just said is is, is correct. We, my team, the direct investment team, we support um, you know growth companies in Switzerland to get access to um, private investors, VC, or strategic investors. When it comes to my team, the the largest USP obviously is that um, we can can open our um, very unique and large network of of investors to the startup at one point in time. And in specific to to the private investors, that's um, that's a tremendous value add. As some of them, you know, they're not accessible otherwise. Some family offices, you they're known in the market, but most of them are not, and and especially not the private ones. And so right. as the largest wealth manager, um, we have long-standing relationships with the former active, um, you know, C-level management executive, family offices, entrepreneurs that we can really access for the startups at one point in time. Mm -hmm. 
um, if if uh, also wanted from the from the startup, um, we have proprietary relationships to VCs and strategics, and and depending on what group of investors they want to target, it's either a mixture or really targeting uh, one group. This is what the support we can we can offer to to the startups. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to your question, um, how does this actually work in this getting in touch phase? We get in touch with the investors that we have to find with the startup beforehand. So is it private? Is it a combination of private and VCs? And um, they will receive a non-confidential teaser. And and if they have, um, you know, if they have more interest, they will obviously then dig more into the details, Mm -hmm. do their first review due diligence. And then obviously the startups, they get... um, the opportunity to pitch in front of the clients. We always right. prefer and highly recommend in-person uh, conversations between the startup and and the investor because you you, you feel much more. You know, it, would would there be an an opportunity to work together? Do we actually let's say like each other? And you also Will feel we the energy, right? exactly? If you can and, and you as an investor, I mean, you can you can much better feel the energy of of the company as well. So I think it's very important to have. The, the in-person in-person discussions and that's actually what we're really trying to um, trying to push for mm-hmm. that there are the the in-person um, in-person meetings also in terms of negotiation that you just talked about can you talk like walk us through how the negotiation process looks like because that's something that usually happens behind closed door and people who have never like sat on a table or been involved there, would like to know how that actually also works. So maybe quickly uh, to our process, because there are two sets of scenarios. Um, if we help startups find uh, private investors, so as I just said, entrepreneurs, family offices, um, we as as UBS sit right in the middle of our two client groups. So the startup on one hand and the private investor on the other hand. Mm-hmm. So um, when it when when we have these kind of situations, we really my team has to step to the sideline when it comes to negotiations and then you know final agreements, as we sit right in the middle of these two client groups and we don't want to get in any right. conflicts. Um, obviously, in the, the second scenario is uh, when we advise startups and then can really take the side of the startup to find VC investors or strategics because then we don't have this conflict of interest between these two clients. Mm-hmm. And then obviously we can um, we can support them during the, the entire process. So after I would say a first due diligence, meetings, going through the data rooms, um, you will have a term sheet. It's a non-binding agreement um, that's that's really setting forth the the, the basic terms and conditions um, mm-hmm. under which this investment will take place or will be made. So you'll have the valuation, um, amount of investment, like the percentages that will be invested, voting rights, et cetera, et cetera. Really just to name a few mm-hmm. um, that investor and, and company agrees upon. And after the term sheet has been set and signed, there will be confirmatory due diligence. Depending a bit on the investors, then um, they take external advisors um, on board for tax, mm-hmm. legal, commercial, financial diligence. Depends a bit on what the investor does internally or externally. Okay. And in parallel, um, negotiations of the final contracts take place. So like shareholders mm-hmm. agreement and, and investment agreement, et cetera, et cetera. So when it comes to these negotiations, it's not only coming down to the valuation, but it really comes down to a variety of um, of items that you know is negotiated between an investor yeah. and a startup. Um, what not only relates to the to the current situation, how do I enter into this company at what valuation stake, but also how do we 
work together going forward? What happens if situations are not going well? You know, maybe in, in uh, VCs like to work with liquidation preferences so that they, you know, have a secure uh, getting their money out first in certain situations, etc., etc. So it's really, you need to make sure when you negotiate that um, the, a combination of, of items are fine with you as a startup that mm. you need to negotiate. You need to watch out for them. It's not just the valuation. It's really a variety of items um, that you need to um, that you need to look at. And obviously, um, I would recommend to have a lawyer um, besides you. And, and in such a case, when we advise, we can obviously also help with our experience uh, guiding the startups through the process. Also, in terms of negotiations, uh, is there any like certain percentage that you see that companies give up for in terms of equity in order to get the growth financing done or a certain range? I would say um, as a rule of thumb in growth financing rounds, uh, founders probably give up between 15 to 25 percent. Mm -hmm. Of the round for the financing is different. It it it, it 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 doesn't really differ much from from seed to growth stage rounds because it's usually right. fifteen to twenty five percent what founders have to give up. So now the negotiation part is done. Mm -hmm. uh, you have the parties that sort of agree. Okay, this is the term sheet. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that there's a next, like the last due diligence. What happens there? So it's really confirmatory due diligence when the VCs bring in other advisors like financial advisors or legal advisors that really dig more into the details and, and confirm of what, what they have done, um, mm -hmm. you know, previously. And then it's, uh, you know, sometimes there will be some negotiations or adjustments on, on valuations if some things came up, you know, that, that haven't been seen before. Do you have an example for one thing that came up, for example? A variety of things can come up and the deal breaker must not only be on the investor side. So, for example, um, during if during final due diligence, you know, patent protection is not as strong as it appeared in the first place or, you know, don't even belong to the company as it was previously assumed. Um, sometimes competition is underestimated and therefore your market share might be lower than what has been previously expected. Right. The valuation might come down. And and then obviously you as a as a as an owner or founder um, do, do, do not agree um, you know mm -hmm. with what will be renegotiated and then these kind of things could be deal breakers that come up why a Absolutely. deal might not take place. Luckily, it doesn't happen that often. <laughs> so after the successful due diligence, uh, you move to the signing of the documents, the yeah. closing. What happens there? What do you sign? What are the next steps? And when do you actually also get the money as a startup? Mm -hmm. So again, have have a good legal advisor with you. Um, but uh, you have uh, you have uh, you know subscription documents where you know the investor uh, subscribes for a certain amount of shares, mm -hmm. depending if you have one investor or multiple. Um, you have your shareholders agreement, so maybe it's a newly negotiated one or you just use your existing one and the new investors just exceed to the shareholders agreement. So right. these will the kind of documents that obviously need to be signed uh, amongst others. And then um, you get a capital increase account. Um, all investors put money into this capital increase account. And once your capital increase is registered with the commercial register, then the money will be released um, on, onto the account of the company. Is it normal that all the money gets sent to your company at once? Or does it also happen that you have to achieve certain milestones or anything like that to get 
the second or third tranche of such a fundraising? So it sometimes obviously depends on your negotiations. So maybe uh, in, in, in the case of life science companies, we have, we have sometimes seen that um, you have a commitment today. And if you reach certain milestones, then it's, it, it triggers another payment at a higher valuation, for example. But it must not only be with life science companies. It can also be with, uh, with other type of companies. Okay. Yeah. So um, only after a certain milestone get another payment but usually um usually the usually the valuation is then also a bit higher okay so um financing amount of use of funds should be in line with your with your business plan and the cash flow statement mm -hmm. so um you need to determine um how much money you need to reach your next key milestone or for example profitability in the next let's say two or three years right. i would recommend you to find scenarios um, and and have a flexible range of capital requirements so what is the minimum you actually need to continue your growth or accelerate your growth and uh, but what you could you also achieve with um with more money and, and what does it mean in terms of dilution for the founders you might find a shareholder that would like to take a larger stake or you know have multiple shareholders um, that you would want to take on board so maybe um in that situation you could have a scenario available what you could do with more money than you originally mm -hmm. planned I would say raise a bit more than than what you need. Um, fundraising takes a lot of management attention and obviously a lot of focus away from the operating business. So I would really recommend, uh, I would not recommend that you do fundraising each year, but rather have have it for a longer period of time and a bit of buffer um, so that you can focus on your um, on your operating business. Yeah, because usually it also takes longer to get to the milestone that you set for yourself, right? Exactly. Usually, usually that also takes longer. And so if you have a bit of buffer available, that's, that's also, uh, well, I mean, uh, if we just look at the current situation that we have with the COVID-19 topic, I yeah. think many startups would be happy to have taken a bit more buffer um, into the liquidity than they actually have. Now we talked about the whole process uh, from beginning to the end, mm -hmm. but how long does that actually take? on average how long do you need to calculate for a successful fundraising process as i said in the beginning it's very important that you have still uh, you know a good 12 month uh, cash run rate because we have experienced that fundraising round usually take longer than expected i would say on average they can take six months six to eight months mm -hmm. the quickest one we had was three and a half um, that's really and, fast and that's really fast and obviously um, the longest one i think took 10 or 11 months so it really you never know what's happening during your uh, during your process um, so really on average you should really take into account six to eight months just okay. to be on the safe side and then have a safety net of additional Definitely. six to four months right or you have a you know you have a great customer base that um uh, in sorry investor base that uh, that will bridge um until you have you know the the new investors on board sure but then you're all, always in a demanding situation and yeah. it's not in your full own control right that's true but if you have support from your investors you know we've also seen that okay. that uh, you know invest uh, existing investors and they look we bridge we will participate anyways in this round so we'll you know we'll put a convertible in for example convertible yeah. loan and you know once all the others are on board um, you know everything converts and, and that round is done would you say that this is something that the majority of the startups that you work with do or is that more like an exotic case we've seen that okay so i, would, I wouldn't common. say it's the majority but uh, we've seen that okay. you know, if fundraising takes longer or you know started too late or whatever then right. you have a good investor base but i wouldn't say it's the majority okay so. now Fundraising is also a very intense and time-consuming process. Mm -hmm. Who in the company should be responsible for managing the whole process from 
the, the company side from the startup side. So depending a bit, you know, the, on the setup of the startup, if it's a rather still a small team or a larger team, but it's a CEO and the CFO. So a combination of both. So maybe CFO runs the process, but the CEO needs to pitch. Yeah. It's usually a combination of both. The board of directors, uh, so, so the board supports or the investors support with, fi mm -hmm. with their network and finding new other investors as well. But obviously CEO and CFO usually run the process. Okay. And also a very important question is how much money should you raise? So you should start when you still have more money left than yeah. for 12 months. But how much should you actually raise that you don't have to raise the next month again? For us as UBS, it's important um, to support the startups and the entrepreneurs very early on mm -hmm. um, and become a sparing partner on the wealth management, but also corporate relationship side over the life cycle of the company. Um, and obviously the entrepreneurs. So direct investment, my team is one puzzle piece in this entire journey that we really want to go with the entrepreneurs and um, and the companies. Mm -hmm. um, for, for our support, we usually take a success fee, which is based on the volume we successfully raise for the company. So for example, if we really bring together companies looking for capital with our private investors, this will be on a success fee basis only. Okay. If we get on the advisory side, meaning we really support a startup and finding a VC or a strategic and advise the company, prepare all the materials and, and do a lot more uh, pre-work, then we will mostly also work with retainers. And also, what is actually the advantage of working with UBS on such a process? Because you know, it's very intense, very time consuming, mm -hmm. and you seem to be a good sparring partner for, for startups and entrepreneurs. But what is the actual advantage? Why should a startup work with you on the fundraising for growth part? So it's, uh, it, it, it has really various components to me and probably summarizing what I have already mentioned, um, uh, during the last, uh, last minutes is, um, on one hand, um, we've seen, we've seen quite a lot of startups, met quite a lot of teams, um, work with them over time. So we really, you know, can, can give them a good guidance on how to properly prepare for the fundraising, uh, make sure that every documents are ready and, and also prepare them in terms of, of, of pitching. Because if you're a, a former researcher and now you're an entrepreneur, you might not be the sales guy. So you really need to switch heads, um, and, and make sure that you get into a different, um, you know, or get into pitching mode um, when when you go into fundraising. Obviously, the second part, um, what we can really support the startups and help them, which is quite a lot of or can be quite a lot of effort, is um, that we approach a variety of investors at one point in time. So usually as a startup, you might be able to contact some VCs here and there because you get intros or you just simply contact them. Sure. But with the private ones, it, it becomes more tricky. Uh, some are not that accessible or you don't even know that they exist. And at once, we really can open our large franchise um, of, of these family offices and entrepreneurs and, and C-level management that could potentially uh, be investors in the company. So really take the effort away um, in approaching every single investor, but, uh, but helping really to open open the doors um, and to, to the different types of investors. I mean, we have longstanding relationships with all these investors and sure. um, it's kind of, they know that we have done a, a very strict selection on the companies and um, that increases the likelihood tremendously that they look, um, you know, at an investment we show them.
Now, I would also like to talk a bit about the part, like what happens after the investment closed and how you actually work with investors. So what are investors' expectations in terms of reporting and regular information flow from the startup after you close the financing round for growth? I would say before we go into the details, I would really like to emphasize that um, the importance um, or that 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 is a huge importance to have a really good relationship um, with your investors. Mm-hmm. It's um, important to have their trust and and you know keep them enthusiastic and, and motivated about the startups because they will be the ones um if you have a bit of a tricky situation or if you're coming up for your next round that you want as an investors again. Um, your existing ones are always the investors, you know, uh, that you will ask first when a, when a next round is coming up. And, and I can tell you, um, having, having been in private equity before and being an investor myself, um, I can tell you how important it is to keep the trust um, or, you know, you, to make sure that your investors can trust you because you will, you know, they will, they will more easily uh, continue to invest and continue to be your partner if there's trust. If, if they feel you ha- you're hiding information from them, it starts becoming tricky. And this can lead to a situation where you, where you simply let companies down um, mm-hmm. in, in, in tricky situations because you feel there is no trust. So the, the relationship to your investors is of utmost importance and you need to make sure um, that you really uh, that you really um, have a, have a great relationship with them, and I would rather have them more information than less. When it comes down to um, what are your reporting standards, usually they're set in the in the shareholders agreement. Mm-hmm. I think it's quarterly reporting that you that you send as the financials, and you probably have a bit of wording around what's going on in your business. Um, but you can also ideally have it monthly, you know, make sure that they're up to date and, and they will feel good that you keep them informed and it doesn't, it's not a lot of administrative burden. It's really, um, they have given you money and I think it's as a startup, your responsibility to take good care of your investors. That's also an important point. That's the, the, the task that you should do anyway. You should have a, a good understanding where you stand with your business anyway. And then it's just simply forwarding that to investors that cannot hurt, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. And and you know, as a CEO and CFO, think about think about your your own reputation. You will mostly meet right. people twice, and and if yeah. they have a, made a bad experience with you, they will not trust you again. Uh, whatever successful startup that is. So, and again, I totally agree to what you said. Is uh, you need you know you 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 need to have a good understanding of your startup, anyways, and so let your investors be part of it. And also, after investor got on board and now is invested in a startup company for the growth stage how do they actually also support the company beyond just the the money that they invested in so there's there's also a difference right if you have uh, there are investors that are pure financial investors they they will be a bit more you know quiet just give their money and be quiet and then other ones they have their strengths so is it a former entrepreneur that can maybe help you and how you you know, grow your company, how you build your team structures, etc. There's maybe C-level management in a large corporate that is active in exactly the field the company's in. Mm-hmm. So can help you with maybe distribution channels or, you know, market access and these type of things. Um, so it really depends on the person you have on board, um, what type of know-how network the person, you know, is, is able to, to give to the company. Sure. And the last question that we actually got is, how broadly diversified should my investor base be? <laughs> what is your take on this? Well, I've seen very large cap tables and very small ones, but I, I would say it's rather important that you have the right investors on board mm-hmm. that are also capable of supporting you in your next rounds and your next fundraising rounds. And I would suggest rather having a smaller cap table than a hundred 
people cap table, it would make it really complicated if you have to do some amendments in your shareholders agreement and these type of things. And, and you need to get last minute decisions and then from everyone. So rather keep it small if possible. I know that's not always possible because if you need funds, um, then you might take a bit more on board, but, you know, rather have a smaller one. So it's good to keep that in mind. Yes. <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to add that we have not talked about yet? Um, so, no, I think uh, I think we've we've uh, covered quite a lot of topics and I hope it was an informative and helpful session um, for the startups. Obviously, thank you very much uh, to you. It sure, was, it was a, a very <laughs> interesting and fun conversation. Um, if there are any further questions from the startups or <clears throat> any of the startups would like to get in touch with us, they can visit us on ubs.com slash direct investments. Um, you'll find more information on how everything works, you know, who we've worked with in the past, but you'll also find a way there to get in, uh, to get in touch with us. And my team is always there to help and to support with any questions you might have. So please just uh, don't hesitate and feel free to get in touch whenever, uh, you know, whenever there's need. Verena, yeah. thank you so much for your time and the great insights. It was a pleasure talking to you and we wish you all the best and lots of future successful fundraising rounds. So thank you very much, Sylvan, as well. Thank you. Before we wrap everything up and give you a sneak peek about our next episode, we would like to thank our sponsor, SBB Startup. The Swiss Railways launched their own startup program. So no matter if you're already an established company or just have an idea, they are eager to hear from you if you think that your company or your idea is a good fit to the Swiss Railways. You can get in touch with them at sbbstartup.com and they will support you with internal connections, with coaching, and also are very interested in launching a pilot project with you. So if you think that your product or your idea or your company have the potential to collaborate with the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them at sbbstartup.com. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the content, we would be thrilled to receive your rating on Apple Podcasts. That way you not only support Swisspreneur, but also help other entrepreneurs discovering the show and finding more valuable information on how to run their businesses. Next week, we will already be back with an all new episode of the Swisspreneur Show. So we hope to see you again then for a new episode.